Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker is the best way to reach readers. If you want to advertise, you have a book, you want to let people know about that book, go to litbreaker.com and you can advertise on a variety of literary sites. You can reach a variety of literary communities. It's a one-stop deal. You can advertise on sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Full Stop, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant. Uh, the list goes on. You can advertise on otherppl.com via Litbreaker. It's very easy to use and it's very effective. Check out Litbreaker at litbreaker.com. Litbreaker, it's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is noise from a device. This is something you can listen to on a train. How's it going today? My name is Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. And uh, I'm very excited about today's show. Kelly Braffett is my guest. Her novel, Save Yourself, is now available in paperback from Broadway Books. She and I will be talking uh, in just a moment. First, however, uh, a couple of quick friendly reminders. Number one, uh, go get the Other People app. It's free. Uh, you can get it wherever apps are available. And once you have it, if you want to support the show, sign up for premium. Get access to the full, uh, full archives every single episode. You can sign up right there within the app. Number two, uh, if you have a couple of minutes and you want to help the cause, you can rate and review the show uh, at iTunes. I would appreciate it if you did that. So uh, moving on, I have a couple of questions from listeners that I want to address quickly before we get started with the main event. Uh, the first of which has to do with blogging and uh, web content and the writing that I was doing uh, on otherpeople.com in conjunction with Mira Gonzalez and Spencer Madsen. Um, I, I think that's in limbo. It would be the best way for me to say it. And that's simply a function of time and a concern for quality. So, uh, for those of you who are, you know, who are new to the show or who are not aware, uh, I launched a redesign of the, of the website not too long ago. When I did that, I started doing an essay a week. I had a couple of other contributors. We were trying to write regularly. And the problem is that I'm so busy 
that I can't do it, you know, on a regular basis and feel good about the quality. And I want the quality to be really high. So, you know, I was staying up all night. I was getting paranoid and stressing out about, uh, you know, whether or not, uh, the copy editing was, was done properly and it was just too much. And I think I speak for Mira and Spencer when I say that. So I think going forward, it'll just be a looser schedule. And, you know, if I have something that I want to say, I have a piece that I want to put up, I'll put it up, but that's the way that it's going to have to be just from a workability standpoint. So there's that. And then I also got a question on Twitter, uh, from someone who wanted to know what I've been reading. And, uh, that seems uh, fair enough and germane. So, you know, just this past week, I read, uh, the new book by Glenn Greenwald called no place to hide, which is uh, super fascinating and riveting. And it's about, you know, it's about the NSA and Edward Snowden, that whole business. And I just can't get, I can't get enough of it. I can't believe that it happened. A that, it, that, you know, the, that the reveal and that the exchange of all the, you know, these government documents happened in the kind of like cloak and dagger way that they happened over in Hong Kong. Uh, like it's like a spy movie come to life. And then uh, I'm also really troubled by uh, the surveillance state, like the Orwellian uh, bullshit that seems to be, uh, you know, coming out of Washington. I don't know what to what, what do you say about that? Like just this week, I read that they're recording every single cell phone call in the Bahamas. <laughs> Did you guys hear about that? Like the NSA is, is recording every single cell phone call in the Bahamas. They can, a, they can do that. B, why are they doing that? It's the fucking Bahamas. <laughs> just seems like such overreach and it, it seems scary to me. It's a slippery slope and I'm depressed that it's happening and I want to know more about it. So I recommend the book, you know, Glenn Greenwald is a, is a pit bull of a journalist and, you know, people give him uh, shit for being strident or for, you know, overdoing it or being argumentative. That's what I want in my journalists. I'm glad he's there. He's tough. So I read, I, I read that. And then I've also been reading, uh, this book called nine headed dragon river, the Zen journals of Peter Matheson, who, uh, who just died recently. And, you know, this happens to me a lot, like some, uh, some artist or, or some big author will die. And uh, in the immediate aftermath, there will be a lot written about this person online and elsewhere. And I will find myself immersed in it, reading these obituaries and tributes and whatnot and, uh, feeling, uh, guilty feeling like, uh, fuck, I can't believe I've, I've, you know, a never read anything by this person, B never seen their films or seen their art or C, uh, never even heard of them. which does happen from time to time. So I've been reading this book, uh, during my fits of insomnia, which, uh, which I have here and there and which you're going to hear more about in my conversation with Kelly. So, but you know, when I can't sleep, I like to read this kind of stuff. Sort of soothing. (laughs) It's kind of embarrassing to admit, but you know, you wake up at three in the morning. uh, it, It tends to be a little bit anxious, the dark of night. So, you know, that's what I've been reading. And uh, just the other night I was online, like on my iPad, and I started reading about this, this guy named Neem Karoli Baba, (laughs) just to give you an indication of how, uh, how bad it can get. I don't even know what I was doing. Just dicking around on the internet. Suddenly I was reading about Neem Karoli Baba. 
who uh, was uh, apparently like a guru in the 60s. And I was lying there in bed and I was looking at this guy and I, reading about him and I just get skeptical. Not that he's not a, a wise man or a good teacher, but, you know, he was portrayed as being this like all-knowing clairvoyant guru guy. Like, why do I never meet these people? I've never met a person who came off like that. Maybe I'm hanging out with the wrong crowd. I don't know. Uh, anyway, that's what I've been reading. Not really reading a lot about Neem Karoli Baba, but I did read uh, most of this Peter Matheson and all of the Greenwald. So check those books out if you're so inclined. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Kelly Braffett. Her novel, Save Yourself, is now out in paperback from Broadway Books. Uh, this was a good conversation. I enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, this is Kelly Braffett, and her book, once again, is called Save Yourself. In the first apartment in New York City, they started building a skyscraper on the corner right after we moved in, and they started, they, they had a literal pile driver, like not just a wrestling move, but a piece of like construction equipment that would just do these enormous rams starting at about 7 a.m., and going until 7 p.m., just driving these huge beams into the ground. Yeah, it's, it, can, it can feel like, I mean, when you're a writer, uh, there's any number of obstacles that are in your way anyway, but then, like, that sort of thing starts to happen, and you feel like the universe is testing you. That's yeah, I know. That's how I felt. Absolutely. I mean, at the time, I was, you know, I was in grad school, so my schedule was fortunately not exactly... I wasn't sitting at home during the day trying to work, but um, my first book, I actually wrote... Pretty much, I have terrible, I have a terrible time sleeping. And, you know, I said that to my neighbor when I met her and she said, God, who sleeps? But I have a particularly terrible time sleeping. And so I try really hard not to work in the same space where I sleep. And in my, you know, when I, before I moved in with Ellen and got married and became grown up, you know, that meant that I was working on the living room couch with my roommate. And I literally wrote my entire first book, you know, watching, as she sat next to me, like knitting and watching The Simpsons. And I had my headphones in and the music turned up. Okay, I was, was going to say, you weren't like, like, The Simpsons wasn't like ambient as you were typing. Like you had music to drown it out. I had music to drown it out, but it was still like there and flashing and I don't know, maybe being subliminally well, there, effective in some way. I don't know. I was going to say, there's worse things to have on, right? <laughs> it's true. It could have been a lot worse. So, okay, so let's talk insomnia because I have a little bit of this. Like how intense is it for you? 
It's not good. It's not good. Um, when I, it sort of comes and fits and starts. And when it's really bad, I think the worst it's ever been was when I was a senior in college, there was a stretch. Actually, in grad school, this happened once, too, where I slept about three hours a night for about two weeks. Oh, God. Okay. And after a while, things start to get very sort of far away and aphasic. Um, aphasia is a word that I looked up to describe this because I know that it, you yeah, know, what I does that to mean? be one. What does that aphasia, mean? It's, it's when you can't think of the word for something. Okay. Like <laughs> right. a fork. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, and so, so now it's a lot better because I'm a grown up and I have better doctors and, um, you know, nobody thinks that I'm trying to get high. So I actually have useful medication to help me so that it does not get that bad. Would it like, like an Ambien or a Lunesta, that kind of stuff? So, yeah. Yeah. Along those lines, I sort of cycle through them so that I don't ever get too used to one drug. But I remember in grad school once, I think during that, that phase when I was, you know, sort of stumbling around in a haze. Um, I, I ran into somebody that I was in class with and was a complete idiot. And as an explanation said, I'm sorry, I've got insomnia. I'm not sleeping very well lately. And she said, oh, really? Me too. You know, but I don't mind because I get so much work done. And I just remember thinking, honey, if you're getting work done, you have no idea what the hell you're yeah. talking about. Like, no. I can barely remember my name right well, now. Well, right. And I've come around on this because I think there's a lot of people... Um, it, it's like there's a, there's a thing called like competitive stressing where, you know, you're at the office or you're talking to a fellow writer or whatever it is. And it's like, you know, I only got two hours of sleep last night and they're like, right. Yeah, I got 90 minutes. Like I haven't taken, a <laughs> I haven't taken a vacation in two years. And they're like me, I, I haven't taken one in three. And it becomes this thing where it's like a badge of honor. Right. And, all I've had to eat is a bagel today. Well, all I've had is a saltine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I've kind of done that where I find myself talking about, like, my lack of sleep and then, like, the fact that I've been up since whatever hour. And, you know, I've sort of edged into that before in my life. And I'm now at the point where it's, like, the badge of honor is, like, if I get eight hours or nine hours of sleep. Like, I want my sleep. I don't – I'm proud to to sleep. <laughs> you know, like – Oh, my – yeah. No, absolutely. I got eight hours of sleep once. It was amazing. Yeah. I wrote about it in my diary. It was, it was insane. <laughs> you journaled about it. Okay. I did. All right. So – um because like, like I, I feel like with my insomnia, it might not be quite as intense as yours, but like it comes in fits and starts. And like, the, like I have this theory that there's something like uh, celestial about it. Like I, I can kind of feel it coming. It's like the, something's in the air, and I'll find myself before I go to sleep at night feeling like, uh, you know what, I should go for a really long walk because that's like, mm. and and I for some reason I don't do it because I'm like actually tired. But then I wake up at two in the morning. So. Are you like able to go to sleep and then you wake up or are you just not able to go to sleep at all? I just can't go to sleep. I mean, my, my, I'm convinced that my biological clock is just completely goofy because I can, you know, get three hours of sleep and sleepwalk all day. And this happened when I had a newborn too, you know, and you're, you never get more than two hours of sleep at a chunk and so I, I can I can be exhausted all day long, barely able to keep my eyes open, and then ten o'clock comes and bam, I'm like ready to go and run a marathon. Except my brain doesn't work, you know. I just have all of this this energy. But I have definitely found that there are things that I do that are mistakes. Like I haven't found anything that I can do to really avoid not being able to fall asleep. If it's going to come, it's you know it's going to come. But there are definitely things where 
you know, if I read past a certain time or I play video games late at night, there are definitely these things that I'm sort of, you know, if I do them, I'm kind of setting myself up for a fall. You know what? I'm like, I'm starting to get old because my wife and I keep talking about this. It's like if we eat too late and we have like a glass, you know, alcohol too late in the evening, <laughs> like I'm, I'm essentially confessing to like eating dinner at five o'clock at night. You know, like that's basically the schedule that I'm on, which is like preemptively elderly somehow. But I, that, that I find that has an impact on my ability to like go to bed at night. It absolutely does. If I have, you know, we, we eat at 5.32, I suspect probably for the same reasons you do. And, um, yeah, if I have, like, you know, a sneaky piece of chocolate cake at 10 o'clock at night or something, I'm doomed. Doomed. I'm just doomed. Okay, so what about, uh, like, tr- do you ever try to hammer out work? Like, do you ever, because, like, they say, like, you're not supposed to just lie there, which is, you know, if I wake up at 2 in the morning, I'm lying there, the thoughts are never good at that time of night. They're always, like, never. dark and, like, anxious. <laughs> Uh, it drives me crazy. So it's like, do I get up and start to like noodle around on my computer? Am I supposed to read a book? Like, what do they what do they tell you to do? Have you seen that cart that New Yorker cartoon, Insomnia Jeopardy? I think it's Roz Chast. No. It's this great sort of mock up Jeopardy board, and it's things like screenplays I may someday write, <laughs> and you know, ways I have been wronged, and all of these things. And it's all the things your brain cycles over. Um, I don't know. You know, I listen to audiobooks, and specifically I listen to nonfiction audiobooks, science or history or something that's not necessarily dry but isn't going to have, like, that tension that keeps me going and going and going. Um, no, you I, do, what you should do is listen to this podcast. That'll put you to sleep immediately. <laughs> never. Way too interesting. You know, for a while I was listening to um, Welcome to Night Vale. At, at bedtime, and I found that that was just way too interesting. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I was just talking about that with a friend yesterday. I got to get into that. It's it's crazy. It's it's fun, but it's crazy. It's uh, it, I I was trying to think of something else like it because I've listened to all the new ones, and I you know have not delved too deep into the realm of the podcast. But I can't really think of anything else. It's just really sort of dark and has a great sort of funny aesthetic. It's 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 bizarre. It's cool. But as far as the sleeping thing goes, I always figure that if I am sitting up in my office with my computer on my lap, there is no chance that I'm going to fall asleep. But if I'm laying in bed, you know, listening to an audiobook or something, then there's at least a slim chance yeah. that I'll fall asleep. Because I don't know, I've just I've just found like even even when I was in you know college or young and had no responsibilities, if I sat down to play a video game at 10 o'clock at night or read a book or something, and before I know it, it's 5 a.m., and it doesn't matter how tired I am. I can just, you know, if I'm engaged in something, I'll keep going. So yeah. I try to well, try to get engaged in something that's about, like, physics or something. <laughs> it's not going to have the same. Are you learning? I mean, is this insomnia? Is there any, like, is there any, like, ancillary benefit? Like, are you getting smarter in the sciences by virtue of not being able to sleep? Um, like, does it well, stick? I don't know. I mean, I... Uh, uh, the interesting stuff sticks. You know, I wouldn't say that I've got super high retention. I, I, I listen to, like, pop science books like, uh, oh, Simon Singh, um, The Big Bang. That was a great one. And sometimes, like, I listened to a biography of Cleopatra. It was out a couple of years ago. And, and, you know, some of the interesting stuff sticks, I think, probably about as much as would anyway. But if, you know, there were a test, I would fail, just like I did in high school, I'm sure. <laughs> 
So, uh, well, that's interesting. And like, I, I, I've been into audiobooks. Like, I kind of go in phases. But what I find is that like whoever is reading is so critical with an audio. Oh book. yeah. Like, if you have the, you could be the greatest book in history, but if it's the wrong reader, it just doesn't work. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know John Ronson? No. John Ronson um, is the author of the Psychopath Test, and he wrote The Men Who Stare at Goats. Okay. That the film with George Clooney was based on. Yeah. He has, um, I think he's just got a new book out recently that I haven't gotten to yet, but he, he, he writes this very sort of brave investigative nonfiction, like the psychopath test. He, he goes around and talks to many, many different people about all of the various ins and outs of psychopathology, including psychopaths themselves, including like murderous dictators. And he, and he has read two of his books on audiobook himself. And he's got this very sort of mild-mannered, dry British accent. Like, he just, he just sounds very calm and very thoughtful. And I was looking at the severed heads on the wall and thinking, you know, it's very sort of... And then The Men Who Stare at Ghosts is read by somebody who's clearly a professional reader who's trying really hard to be amusing. And it's so important because the ones he reads himself just kill me. And that one just didn't, didn't have nearly the same effect. Yeah, I mean, it would be ideal. I mean, not all authors are very, you know, it, it wouldn't work with every author because some authors, when they read their stuff, you know, for the, for those purposes anyways, it wouldn't work. But um, I want to say that I listened to an audio book of uh, Consider the Lobster, the David Foster Wallace essay collection that he read, and I can't imagine it being any better with somebody else reading. Like, it, it, it really fit to have his voice doing it. And Oh, that's really interesting. I love that collection. I should check that out. Yeah, no, I mean, because, you know, if, if a writer does happen to have like a, a good voice to match their work, it, they know all the they know the cadence and all the right. you know all the proper inflections. But I read a really good one, or I heard a, a really good one um, of 1984. Like I hadn't read the book since I was a kid, and I was on vacation, and I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to like sit on the beach and listen to the 1984, <laughs> which is of course what people do, you know? Absolutely, uh, light beach reading. <laughs> So, but it was it was it was wonderfully done. There was like a the perfect British man reading it into my head, and it sounded you know just ideal. So, well, that's wonderful that it it still it still was awesome. I just reread Catch Twenty Two, which I hadn't read since high school, and it was not nearly as awesome as I remembered it. Really, what was wrong? What was the difference? Part of it was that I think the absurdism of it feels a bit dated now and a bit bloated. You know, um, because it's, you know, what, mid to late 60s, and it's all very sort of, uh, so much of the book is based in, so much of the absurdism in the book is based in repetition. You know, things happen over and over again, and they're just as stupid as they were the first 8,000 times. And I don't know if it's just that I've sort of, you know, we're, we're, we're evolving away from, from that sort of thing or what, but it, it, it just struck me as repetitive as opposed to, like, absurd and insightful. Isn't, isn't and, it, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. I was just going to say, it's strange when you're, when you read a book, when you're a kid, like just the timing of a read and how important it is, how you can read something when you're like 16 years old and it can be absolutely mind blowing. And then you fast forward uh, a decade or two and suddenly uh, the thing doesn't register at all or vice versa. Yeah. I've had both experiences, but uh, I can find that like there are authors that I loved as a kid um, who, as I get older, you know, don't, don't hit me the same. And there's nothing wrong with that, but there is something sort of sad about it. And I'll find myself like sort of resisting picking up those books because I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to have like the experience sullied. It's like, I, 
you know what I'm saying? I want to keep it holy or something. <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. I totally regret rereading Catch-22. <laughs> right. so in gone. my head, it was so perfect. And now I, I just feel sad about it. Yeah. I've had the opposite experience where I read a book or even watch a movie or something and think, 16-year-old me would have loved this. Mm. And I can, like, see the appeal from arm's length, but I can't quite get there. And that's just as sad in yes. its own way to yes. sort of know that at a different part, part of time in your life that would have you know, been, been one of the things you file away in your soul and now you're just too old and your heart is dead. <laughs> I know. I th- you, know what, you know what else that really gets uh, another like realm where that really registers with me is with music. Like, Oh yeah. Like, I, you know, I, I've gone over this before, I think maybe even on the show, but it, it's like, I can't keep up. I used to keep up and now it's yeah. like everything is lost on me. And then, you know, you just, that window of time when you're like 16 to 24 or whatever, you, you know, the emotional octaves that you can reach you know like when it comes to music and the way that you derive your sense of identity from it it can't be repeated no no and it can't but it doesn't it doesn't fade you know or at least it doesn't always fade there are still there's still stuff i loved when i was 16 that i love just as much now yeah you know? well and I think, um, I think that like if i go to a show i can get back there to a to an extent yeah um I don't know. I can have moments in the car or whatever, you know, where I'll be like, this is, this just sounds so good right now. Uh, but it's not, you know, it's just not as consistent and as intense. And, and I just don't know as much about what's going on with new music right. as I used to. And it doesn't grab you the same. Like, like you said, it's not so all consuming, you know, it's not, it's not like a crucial part of your identity. It's something nice to listen to the car in the car on the way to the grocery store. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, in terms of your like writing life, like how did you get into the into this business? You know, like I'm assuming you were like a readerly child. It sounds like it. I was. I was a readerly child. I, for the most, I, I was one of those kids who sort of learns to read freakishly early. Um, so I, like how I, early? I was three. I think I don't remember not being able to read. Um, and I don't be, I don't remember not being able to read fairly complicated stuff. You know, like I, re- I was carrying the, this will tell you an awful lot about the kind of child I was, but I was carrying, my parents had this hard cover edition. I think they probably got it from the book, of the month club of the Hobbit. And it had like, you know, foil imprinting and it was all very spooky and impressive looking. And I was carrying it around first grade. I remember reading, um, it? I read parts of it. I didn't read the whole thing. I remember the Battle of the Five Armies. I was totally uninterested in, but like the beginning and the bits where they're in the forest and the spiders, all that stuff. I love. Okay, so but you must have. I mean, who, who's teaching you to read at three? You didn't just pick this up on your own. You must have had like a parent who was. Well, my brother claims he did. He's three years older, but there is a thing called automatic reading, which is when your brain sort of decodes written language in the same way that your brain decodes spoken language in the same way you learn to talk, you sort of learn to read. Um, and talking about this makes me feel like an utter dweeb, but I, I think that that's what must have happened with me because my parents were readers, but they were also very busy. They weren't I was gonna sitting say. down at the kitchen table with me and like going over phonics and stuff. It was just sort of something that I... Uh, I guess I figured it out on my own. I don't know. My brother swears he taught me how to read cat and that that was where it all started, but I, I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't I remember. Didn't, I didn't know that automatic reading was a thing. And I was and I'm also feeling negligent as a parent because my daughter's three. <laughs> cannot read. <laughs> well, mine is five and when she got to be around three, three and a half, I started sort of watching to see if she if she was gonna do the same thing that I'd done. Because it's not entirely a blessing. Like it sounds like an awesome thing and in, in I think, you know, in the aggregate over the long term it is. But in the short term, I was super bored in school because so much of those early years is spent learning how to read. And, you know, I walked in the door knowing how to read. I remember my first grade teacher told me I didn't have to do anything I didn't want to do. So I just sat there and colored all day. Um, I was a bored kid. And I was also kind of a lazy kid because reading had come so easily to me that I didn't feel like I should really have to work at anything. Uh which explains the, you know, D's in math in high school. Um, so it, so it's, it's not entirely, I, I was actually sort of glad that she, that she didn't do it because it's, um, it, it's tricky. Okay. I'm feeling better. You're, you're, <laughs> you're reeling me back in. I was like starting to be like, Oh my God. Cause I and do- socially it totally screws you up by the way. Socially it totally like sets you apart and does very weird things with your, with sort of your peer group and the way your peer group sees you. Why? Because you were just acing the tests, or you were what? Well, because the teachers who are teaching, I mean, you know, this was again in the 80s, when they're teaching 36-year-olds to read, you know, every five seconds, a six-year-old is going to come up to the desk and say, what's this word? And when you have a line of 10 of them, and you have one six-year-old who can already read, then eventually, I think the temptation becomes too strong to start saying, why don't, why don't you go ask Kelly? Ask yeah. Kelly what that word is. Right. And that makes things very weird for everybody eventually. I mean, it, it really sort of sets you apart in a way that is not good. So what, and like, yeah, cause like what, what's the, how does that manifest? I mean, cause you, you take on an almost teacherly role or, you know, there's a hierarchy established where you know more than they do. And then like, how did they wind up treating you? Um, at that point, fine. But you know, I was a weird kid and everybody kind of knew I was a weird kid, you know, I mean, kids, kids know weird. And again, this was when I was sort of young enough that nobody was really being evil about it yet. But, um, but it was, it was definitely, I was sort of not quite one of the tribe and I probably would have been not quite one of the tribe anyway. Cause like I said, I was a little weird. How else were but, you weird? Um, like, I mean, obviously, you know, you can read from the womb, but then like, what else? Like, were you just a, were you antisocial? Were you moody? Like, what was it about you that you think was weird? I was super sensitive. I cried all the time. I was always crying. Um, and I had, you know, this hyper intense fantasy life where if, you know, everybody else was playing kickball and I didn't want to play kickball, then I would go over, you know, to the swings and pretend I was Han Solo or something. <laughs> you know? And, you know, with, with dialogue and everything by myself, which Again, not exactly, uh, not exactly, not exactly normal, one might say. <laughs> You're blocking scenes over by the swing set. And by the way, I, I, I mean, if it really was Han Solo, I commend you on that selection. I always felt he was the one, you know, like when I was a Star Wars fan as a kid, it was always Han. Yeah, I didn't want to be Luke. Like, you know, no, he, I had no, yeah, I had no interest in being Luke. I didn't, I think if he'd asked me, I would have said that I wanted to be Leia, but I didn't want to be Leia. I wanted to be Han. Yeah. Like, the scoundrel. Uh-huh. He's the scoundrel. <laughs> Absolutely. He's a smuggler. He's the adventurer. What's not to love? Um, okay. So, and where were you? Where were you uh, born and raised? 
Well, I was born in California, and I lived in Arizona until I was 10. And when I was 10, we relocated to a tiny town outside of Pittsburgh, um, which is where all of my books are set, Um, which was a bit of a culture shock. Um, Well, that's also because I moved right around that same age. Like, that's a... That's a pivotal experience for a human being. I always it's, a, it's under it's it's under um, it doesn't get as much credit as it deserves for being like a total mind fuck. <laughs> oh, it's brutal. Well, moving and death and getting fired are supposed to be the three most stressful experiences that that the three most stressful life experiences that you can go through, and to have that sort of thing happen when you're ten is just I think brutal because you don't you're just sort of figuring out how to not be a kid you know your your brain is sort of expanding into these these social realms that it's just a really bad time to have that that sort of vulnerability and that sort of you know being uprooted it sucks and and actually I have through the years I've known a lot of people who have gone through major crises at 10 usually it's a divorce or a move or something like that and we have all sort of agreed that it's never awesome when your parents get divorced and it's never awesome to move across the country, but it's particularly shitty at 10 because, yeah. you know, I left fourth grade and everybody was a kid and I showed up in fifth grade and everybody was like comparing brand names and it was just totally dizzying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just, yeah. I mean, just, and you're just like an alien, you know, you really have, you don't know anybody and that's a strange feeling at that age. So, uh, and, and then I'm, a, you know, you said uh, already that you were kind of a weird kid. So then you show up in this new environment uh, like, the, how long did it take you to feel at home? Well, I left when I was 18 <laughs> and went to college. Uh, and I, I don't think I ever really, I mean, I don't know, high school eventually ended up being okay, but I was always very aware that I was going to leave. I mean, one of the things that was interesting about Western Pennsylvania in general is that it tends to historically it tends to have been a very isolating place you know it's surrounded by mountains and people just have not tended to move i knew a lot of people growing up whose grandparents and aunts and uncles all lived within a five minute walk of them and which was bizarre to me that you could live down the street from your grandma and that that was totally normal because my grandmother in arizona had lived four hours away um so there's not a lot of in and out you know and again in Arizona, we had had a fairly big migrant population. And so there was a new kid every month and somebody moving out every month. And I was the first new kid in like two years uh, yeah. in Pennsylvania. So they had no, and, and this group of kids had been together, the same class had been together since kindergarten. So they had no earthly idea what to do with somebody that they had not grown up with. Like it, it was a totally alien situation in every way. And they talked really differently. <laughs> I mean, Western Pennsylvania has some of the strangest and most idiosyncratic sort of slang and language and things that I, I, I almost, you know, I felt like I had moved to Mars. It, it just didn't make, I, I kept having to ask people what things meant, um, what it meant. Like, like someone would say, like somebody would say, oh, Kelly, quit being nebby. And I'd say, I don't know what that means. And what it means is nosy, but they don't say nosy, they say nebby. Or they'd ask me to get a gum band, and I would have no idea what they were talking about, but it was a rubber band. And so all of these little things that just, um, it, it was it was a little disorienting, but, you know, eventually I did sort of figure it out, So, what, like okay, I said, by high school. What town was it? Uh, it's a town called Greensburg, which okay. is 
about 45 minutes outside of Pittsburgh proper. So what, what, what took you from Arizona? Like, and where in Arizona were you? In Arizona, we were in Yuma, which is in the extreme southwestern corner of the state. Um, it's about a half an hour from California, about half an hour from Mexico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's like, and that's like a completely different... Uh, everything. everything. Yeah, I was going to say that's an <laughs> extreme culture shock. And so, what was the what was the reason for the move? Oh, my dad got a job. Okay, so he just yeah. transferred. That's why we moved too. So, um, and I've always said too, like there's something about that experience. Like I guess this happens in other countries too, where you know parents get jobs and get transferred and whatnot. I, I got to imagine that happens. But there's something very American about the whole experience of uh, and sort of like. Um, Reminiscent of like the 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 origin story with the pilgrims and everything, like packing up everything and like setting off in search of a better life. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Going somewhere where you don't know anybody, right. and yeah, everything's everything's going to be strange and new and different, and there's going to be snow. Now, I think that's absolutely true. And the distances here are so massive. I was I was talking on Facebook with a with a British friend of mine the other day. And he said, oh, such and such is um, only 190 miles from, from where we live. And I said, I think he was, you know, probably nice enough to convert it to miles before he told me about it. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, oh, so day trippable then. And he said, no, what are you talking about? You know, but for me, 200 miles is like, you know, a reasonable distance to drive for an overnight trip somewhere. Um, so that's three hours, right? That's nothing. Yeah, it's, it's three hours. But, you know, driving from Arizona to Pennsylvania took us four days driving 12 hours a day yeah i mean now that's the truth and and i guess if you're in england and your dad gets transferred or whatever or takes a new job then you you know you're probably like an hour away from where you used to live you can't be that far basically um okay so and then in high school i'm imagining that you did you start to um like identify as a writer or get into like actually putting your thoughts on paper or were you still just reading I did. I mean, honestly, I never really wanted to do anything else. And I have been sort of, I remember actively trying to write stories down, um, actually, probably after we moved to Pennsylvania, when I was 10 or 11, and sort of always, always trying to do it. I don't think I ever, I don't think I actually managed to like complete a story until I was, until late in high school, Um, my junior or senior year, probably. But I I remember I, I was such a brat. Jesus, it's no wonder I didn't have any friends. But in high school, in our, uh, I think it was, I don't know, some class my senior year, it might have been economics or something required. And the teacher had us all go around and say something about it ourselves. And, of course, we all knew each other, so I don't know what the point was. But he said, when it came to me, I said, um, well, I'm Kelly and I'm a writer. And and I was like 17. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's guaranteeing that, like, I don't know. I was such a shithead, but um, I, like I think everybody though. is at that point. Hey, but that's a char- I think that's a charming uh, confidence. Well, confidence slash arrogance, but I think it. <laughs> I think it worked out because I think that mixture of confidence slash arrogance is sort of key to the writer's existence. You know what I mean? Like, if, if your skin's too thin and you can't sort of you know, say, I'm a writer, then your first review is going to destroy your soul. Well, and there's also something to be said for just going out on a limb and, and, and like publicizing the fact that this is how you think of yourself and this is what you want to do. Because once you do that, I feel like it, it, it puts social pressure on you to follow through. 
Right. It, it becomes part of your identity. You've committed to it. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I made the huge mistake, like just coming out of college, like a, a mistake slash good move of like telling all my aunts and uncles um, uh, down south because my folks are from Louisiana and just be like, yep, I'm writing a book. And then like for the next like eight years, <laughs> it's like, oh, no. every Christmas it was like, how's it going? You know, how to, when, when are we going to get to read this thing? I was just like, shit. <laughs> but it, you know, kept me, kept me going, kept me at the keyboard. So, um, so, okay. So you then go on to what, Sarah Lawrence? I did. Okay. So I another, did. another transition. How did you wind up there? Well, I, <laughs> do you remember, you probably won't because there's no reason for you to, but do you remember Sassy Magazine? Did that ever enter your <laughs> sphere of existence? Huge. I'm a huge fan. Uh, no. Okay. No, awesome. No, I've, I've never heard of it. What is okay. it? Okay. Well, Sassy Magazine was the teenage, the magazine for smart teenage girls for about two years. Like it, it was very much sort of, it's actually the woman who went on to found um, XO Jane. Okay. Now she's done a couple things along the way, but it had this very sort of distinct voice and it was very funky and they had like Doc Martin's giveaway contests and all this sort of stuff. And it was around for a couple of years, but they did an article once called um, drugs killed one of our friends about a friend of theirs who was writing student Sarah Lawrence who had died of a heroin overdose. And they printed the story and I read the story and had never heard of Sarah Lawrence because Sarah Lawrence did not recruit at my high school. And, um, said, wow, that's pretty good. I should look into this school. And so I did, and that's how I ended up there, which is kind of um, bizarre and sad, but um, no, but, but I mean, it got me to a good school. I know, but, you know, like I, I mean, I went to the University of Colorado because I stole the brochure off the girl's desk next to me in Spanish class. True story. Good for you. <laughs> and, like, I like the pictures. And I, I've told this story over the years with, like, a mixture of, like, yeah, it's it's sort of funny and sort of sad, <laughs> you know, but uh, I've had more people tell me the same thing. My wife, uh, who went to Pepperdine, did the same thing. She's from Minnesota, and she's looking at Malibu going, I think I want to go there. <laughs> <You know? laughs> she's like, the, like the dark heart of like a Minneapolis winter and just wanted out. And so, you know, when you're that age, uh, you know, and my parents were always telling me that I, I should go to college and that, you know, they were always encouraging me from an academic standpoint. So I don't m mean to like say that I was completely on my own. But, you know, when you're 16 or 17 years old, you need some, some guidance. You need somebody in your ear, like, telling you what to do. I had no idea what was out there, you know, or, or what the stakes necessarily were um, academically and what that might mean. I had no, I had no real concept of it. No, I, I didn't either. And I didn't understand sort of the con I, I you know I, I went to Sarah Lawrence and I looked around and I saw people with like crazy dyed hair and thought oh I want to be here these people are weird this is my tribe this is where I belong um, and I'm not actually sure when it all comes down to it that it was the best place for me to end up but I had I got an awesome education there you know um, I, there there is no doubt that that I learned sort of how to think in a really in a way that I think is different than some other people. And that's the end of my Sarah Lawrence plug, because then I will now go on to say that it was socially super lonely. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so wait, so wait, let me, let's, let's start just with like how, how you learn to think. Can you drill down into that a little bit? I'm curious. I can try. I mean, I remember that my freshman year, I took this literature class, and um, my first paper came back and dipped in red ink, which I think is sort of obligatory for your first college paper, right? It's got to come back just slaughtered. And I think, the, I mean, they didn't do grades, but I, I do not think it would have gotten um, above a C. 
And it made me so angry that, uh, you know, I was determined that my next paper was really going to kick ass. And so I, you know, was working really, really hard on sort of figuring out what, not, not what my professor wanted, but what he was trying to teach us to do, which was like have our own ideas and, you know, not just write a paper to fulfill an assignment, but write a paper because you have something to say, to find the something to say about the books that you are reading that is worth saying and then saying it in an interesting way. Um, and I remember there came a point toward the end of that year when he and I were talking about a paper that I had written about the female characters in Great Gatsby. And he was like, you know, I don't think I've read this anywhere else. You might be able to get this published somewhere. And I was just like, are you serious? I'm 19. Like, I, I don't, but it was, it, it so blew my mind that he was taking my ideas seriously and taking the things that I thought seriously and that he thought that they were interesting. Yeah. And I think that 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 it really sort of elevated the concept of what I was trying to do. You know, I wasn't just trying to to um, complete assignments and get the credit for the class. Like I, I was actually trying to sort of say something and find something that I cared about in this books that we were reading. Um, and I think that that ended up serving me really well because on you know on top of everything else, it it teaches you how to write. Like if you're trying to coherently express an idea, you know, there's, there's obviously prose and craft and all the things that you learn in a fiction writing workshop, but to sort of, you know, get thoughts across is, is another just as useful beast. And, um, well, no, I mean, you, it sounds, I mean, you, you were writing for, like, it, it let you know that you had an audience that was actually listening or reading carefully. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that it was okay for me to, to, to read carefully and to think carefully that all of these sort of weird thoughts that I've been having weren't weird. They were the way that people study literature, <laughs> right. which so, I didn't know. And you, and you went in majoring in like you, you went in saying, I'm going to, I'm going to college to learn how to be a writer. Yes. Yeah. That was my, that was my ambition. I mean, you know, because at Sarah Lawrence, we didn't have majors. Um, there. Oh, didn't? Okay. No, we didn't have majors. We had concentrations. <laughs> um, so I concentrated in, uh, <laughs> <laughs> literature and fiction writing <laughs> and oh, then you know good. they made me take other classes too but that was mostly what i did and then um, uh, and then uh, after sarah lauren and you said it was socially lonely well it was it was um you know at the time and i don't think this has improved much the gender ratio there was like 70 percent women 30 percent men so, so, so guys if you're listening <laughs> Yeah, it's not a bad deal, you know, except that by the end of four years there, you and all of your friends have all basically slept with the same people and <laughs> right. and know it and are like have have, you know, moved past being awkward about it. Um, yeah, that's I mean, really and truly seven to if it's like th- three guys for every seven girls, the girls are basically all dating the same guys, right? Basically. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, you assume that, you know, not everybody is interested in a partner of the opposite gender. Right. obviously. Right. So that also narrows your pool and it matters less on the female side than it does on the male side. You know, when you've got, you know, 10 guys in your pool and half of them are not interested in you, then, then <laughs> things get real limited real fast. <laughs> so do you, did you, I mean, do people find themselves lowering their standards? So you're like, well, he's going to have to do. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's lowering of standards and there's also, well, I'm pretty sure he's sleeping with her, but I don't have anything else going on. So, you know, we're, we're just not going to look at each other in the dining hall and pretend it's not happening. 
Wow. Okay. So were you unhappy? Like, were you, I mean, obviously you were probably academically uh, stimulated, but like, were you like itching to get out of there because of that? No, I mean, I think, I mean, I think there were definitely times when I was unhappy. Um, my senior year, I was pretty, pretty ready to go. I think I, I had sort of felt like I had done what I came to do and most of my friends had moved on and graduated. And so I, I was just sort of, you know, I, I, played a lot of Riven, which was the sequel to Mist. <laughs> my fundamental memories of my senior year of college are mostly of sitting in my room playing video games at four in the morning. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I definitely, you know, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. I didn't want to, like, move to Austin and promote music or something like that or, you know, work for a nonprofit or any of the things that my friends were doing. So when, you know, graduation day approached, I sort of, and here's another fantastic story about how you find the place where you end up. I went to the U.S. News and World Report list of the top 10 MFA schools, which they had just started releasing, and I applied to all of them that had online applications. And? And I got into Columbia at NYU, wow. which was where I wanted to go. Um, but, I mean, in retrospect, looking at it, I was applying to schools that I had no business at and would have been miserable at, like uh, Brown, which at the time was really um, – experimental and had this like three person program. And I, I would just not have, they, they didn't accept me for a reason and they were right to not <laughs> accept me. So what did you, <laughs> that was a good call. What did you, did you have some, you obviously had samples at the ready. So you had been working on stuff as an undergraduate. I did. I had a couple of short stories. Um, actually I had more than a couple of short stories. I had a couple of decent short stories. Um, we'll say that, that, that I included in my application. And in fact, um, I, I pretty, figured out pretty quickly once I, I ended up at Columbia, and I figured out pretty quickly once I got there that um, short stories were probably not going to be where I ended up spending my time. And so I was working on this novel, but I wasn't ready to workshop it yet, so I just kept workshopping the same short story in every class. Like every semester, the class would shift, and it got to the point where there was a guy in my, in, in, who had been in all three of these workshops, and he's just like, Kelly, I have nothing new to say about this. I've seen this three times. You've got to be kidding write something new and I was like I am I am writing something new it's just I don't want to workshop it yet because it's big and I don't know how so we uh, um, is that you know that's an, that brings up an interesting point because when it comes to the workshop experience whether it's at an you know in a university setting in an MFA program or if it's in some sort of writers group like timing does matter you can workshop something too early and waste not only your time but everybody else who's reading it just because it's, it's too big of a mess you know no absolutely and with this with um with the book that I was working on, which ended up being my first book, um, I was coming, I, I was not entirely sure what I wanted to do with it. You know, I was reading all of this noir stuff, this sort of classic, you know, Raymond Chandler and James and Kane and all these people. And I knew I wanted to do something in that vein, but I wasn't really confident enough to put that out there and workshop at the Columbia University School of the Arts Masters of Fiction Writing Program. You know what I mean? Like, I, I wasn't quite... Why? Because it was too, too genre-y? Because it was a little too genre I wasn't quite sure yet what I wanted it to be, and I didn't want them to kill it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not, not that it was a particularly brutal program and, and you know they were in the habit of killing things for fun. It wasn't like that. It was just that I think that I felt sort of fragile about it, and I didn't want to risk like having somebody completely inadvertently say that awful thing that just spears the story through the heart and makes it die. <laughs> right. Just the, the kill shot. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah. I mean, and I think like I think that uh, most really uh, accomplished writers that I know have a good instinct about when to share their work, like when it's ready, 
And I think that sometimes, especially if you have like a, you know, especially early, you have that Jones to get published. You want to see yourself in print and, you know, that's definitely a natural thing. But sometimes that emotional process can override your better instincts with regard to when to share. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think with most of my books, there's come a point around 150 pages where I give it to somebody that I really trust and just say, does this feel like a book? You know, does it feel like it's got forward motion? Don't give me, you know, don't give me much else. I just need to know if I should keep working on it. Um, and, and that seems to work, but, um, you know, and then, I, and then I don't let anybody see anything again until it's, you know, completely finished. Well, not completely finished until I can't figure out what else to do with it. And then I start asking other people what to do with it. <laughs> just please tell me what to do with this pot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay, so, and out of your Columbia experience, uh, you finish a book? I, uh, well, I wasn't quite done by the time I, I sort of finished classes, but I only took one thesis year afterwards. So, yeah, I finished a book, um, which was uh, eventually became, after a lot more revision, um, my first novel, which was Josie and Jack. And it, it, you know, if you were really enterprising and had a lot of free time on your hands, you could actually go and look at the first draft of it which is in the Columbia library somewhere with all of the other master's <laughs> theses. It's, I, I think I finished it like three days before it was due. So I'm sure it's just superb. <laughs> well, you know, Ke- Kelly Braffett completists now know where, where <laughs> to find that. They can go search it out. Uh, just never you, speak of it again. Did you, okay. Did you get, I mean, being at Columbia, you're in uh, the city, you have access to, um, you know, the, the epicenter of publishing and media. Like, were you, meeting people that went on to help you in your professional life, did you find that that was beneficial, like just that proximity? Oh, absolutely. No, I think that's the biggest value of an MFA program is um, taking your, learning to take yourself seriously as a writer and being around other people who are taking, you, you're, who are taking both you and themselves seriously as writers. Um, I definitely met a couple, there were a couple of professors that were really sort of influential along the way. And, and, you know, at Columbia, well, um, let's see, uh, Benny Kirschenbaum was one of them. She was actually my thesis advisor. I talked to her a lot. Um, And uh, a guy named Nicholas Christopher. Okay. You ever heard of him? Yeah. Anyway, um, but just people who sort of got what I was doing and were very supportive um, early on. And, and who were also very, I mean, at the time I was working 30 hours a weekend going to school full time. So I wasn't doing, you know, I, I was, I was operating a little bit differently <laughs> than some of my classmates. And, um, and they understood that, that I wasn't going to spend time on my seminar reading because I needed to spend time on my writing and that sort of thing. Right. And you were probably not sleeping. You were, you were really running hard. I was fun. <laughs> I was fun. You're just like the, the most enjoyable zombie in town. Party years, yeah, <laughs> I like to think of them. Uh, um, but, you know, I was, I've always been, they, they do these things at, I think, probably most MFA workshops where they, like, import agents and have the agents do panels, or, you know, they're trying to, like, get you to meet the people that you need to know. And I was never very good at that, but I was not half bad at making friends that were good at it. <laughs> That's all you need. So, yeah, exactly. I, I you know managed to um that's actually how i met my agent is she was the agent of somebody that i went to um columbia with and it it always sort of i have to admit it sort of stabs at me a little bit because you know i i do these panels or i do readings or whatever and people say to me well how do you get an agent and i say well jesus i met mine at a dinner party you know and and it feels like 
the least helpful advice that I could give, obviously. And it sort of burns me that I know that there are like all of these perfectly brilliant writers you know, out in the Midwest who just don't happen to be at the kind of dinner parties that have literary agents at them. Right, right. And, well, and, or there's writers out there, like I often think of writers who are truly socially uh, compromised. They have a really difficult time right. being social. So how many great books have withered on the vine or never seen the light of day because of that? Like I, that question bothers me. <laughs> No, it, it bothers me, too. It bothers me a lot. Um, and actually, the last panel that I did, one of the other writers very helpfully pointed out that, you know, now there's Publishers Marketplace, and it has all these nifty tools for, like, finding editors that edited books you liked and relation- agents that they have relationships with and agents who are looking for things. And it's it's one of the most beneficial things I've heard about the Internet in, in eons is that it's sort of cutting through some of that, like, the luck of being in the right place at the right time or of getting yourself to the right place at the right time. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, too, like for people who might be like, you know, IRL uh, awkward. Right. <laughs> you know. IRL awkward. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. But, you know, people who might not be the greatest at, like, say, a dinner party, who might not be great at, like, a, a speed dating event and an MFA program with a bunch of agents, you know. Right. Um, the, there is something very synchronous between uh, a writer's skill set and the internet and self-presentation and crafting that and finding a way to communicate. I mean, you would think that if you, if you can't do it via the internet in writing, then, then you're really, there's no hope for you, but at least, at least that gives you a possibility. (laughs) No, absolutely. I mean, it it gives you some sort of control over how you present yourself. You know, you can edit the tweet before you send it. Yes. Um, And you should probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Note to self. So uh, before I let you go, I have to ask you, uh, it feels obligatory, but I have to ask you about, uh, you know, marrying Owen and becoming a part of the King family, which is such a, um, it's a big deal in American literature, you know, and that must have been, uh, you know, what's the word? I don't want to say stressful, but, uh, you know, hard for you to process, easy for you to process. Is actually a pretty good word for okay. that. Um, okay. I mean, at, at first, obviously, I mean, meeting your your boyfriend's parents is always sort of a stressful thing, and it's a lot more stressful when your boyfriend's parents are famous and wealthy, and you've been reading them since you were ten. Yeah, because like you, um, we should say you're like you grew up reading Stephen King, as most of us did. But I mean, like you're sure. a, you're a genuine fan, and then suddenly you're dating his son, uh, and then you're marrying him and becoming a part of that family. Yeah, well, the, you know, it wasn't all that sudden. But, um, <laughs> right. It was a whirlwind romance. Past, past the first date, it actually moved at a pretty steady, normal pace. Um, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I always joke that every swear word I didn't learn from my dad, I learned from Owens. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was definitely a little bit stressful. Um, and they, uh, you know, I, I don't think I spoke much for the first year or so that we were dating. Um there was a time when we were when we were living together when we ended up living in Maine for about 6 months cuz we were between apartments and it's a long boring complicated New York realty story but um and that I think helped a lot because I saw them almost every day right. for 6 months and right. was sort of got a chance to be around them and have conversations and get over my sort of nail biting what the fuck that I had been stuck in for years and years but they're also you know they're really nice people they're like genuinely warm and genuinely brilliant and genuinely like supportive. And they've always been super supportive of, of me and my career and what I wanted to do. And it's, um, it's, 
you know, I, I have I have no bad things to say about this. I guess the only thing that's even sort of remotely a negative is that I sometimes sort of have to deflect the obligatory question about Stephen King in interviews. Well, of course, of course, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just feel like obligated on behalf of my audience to ask about it because there was the the New York Times Magazine piece where yeah. I mean, it's an it's a fascinating story. There's a reason why people want to write about it. To have this many writers in one family. Um, is, you know, to say the least unusual. And I'm curious about, you know, when you have proximity at the family level to uh, that many writers who are publishing successfully and, you know, obviously in Stephen's case, like beyond successfully, uh, like what kind of pressure does that create for you creatively to get your work done? And you must be like, shit, I got to bring it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Steve blew the curve. I mean, let's be honest. Like, you know, I I am not going to put out two books a year ever in my life. And that's like a slow year for him. Um, what, by the way, what is that? Like, have you ever heard, I mean, I'd love to talk uh, to him at some point because it, 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 I think all writers look at that and they go, what in the hell is going on? Like, is it, it's just a gift. It's a, the, it's, the man is a machine. What can I say? Like, is he, it, it's called like graphomania or whatever. Like he can just pour it out. He can just pour it out. He works really, you know, he, he, he keeps really, solid schedule and he he goes until it's done i mean what can i say he's the man is a machine um but it doesn't actually sort of freak me out on a creative level because what i'm doing is very different from what they're all doing um i think we're all doing different things for the most part i mean joe and steve are sort of on somewhat similar shelves but um but even there there's enough of a distinction that it's not really I, i don't feel competitive at all with them yeah um, but I do say I do think I mean this is just my uh, like outsider uh, perspective. But it is interesting because Owen's you know gone off in a, a, a more liter- quote unquote literary direction, and uh, this is actually something I wanted to ask you about because these distinctions become a little bit of a headache uh, in the literary realm or in the book realm, I should say, right. between literary and genre. And then you look at um, you know Stephen King and, and Joe, and those guys are like you know I think people would say are genre writers working in like horror fiction or whatever. And I feel like your work seems like, you know, in the constellation of authors in your family seems to be somewhere in the middle of all that. Cause you are really story focused and, um, you know, a lot of your, a lot of the authors that are in your kind of DNA, um, seem to have been focused on that as well. But yet, I don't know, it seems hard to classify. Do you even ponder that or, or think about how your work fits? Oh, I ponder it endlessly. <laughs> I ponder it endlessly. My editor ponders it endlessly. We all ponder it endlessly. Um, I think that I, I always describe my books as either really literary crime fiction or really crimey literary fiction, sort of depending on which way you swing and what the audience I'm talking to wants me to say. Um, I have always been hyper interested in story like it's all about story for me everything is about story for me you know my dreams have these amazing plots like it's just how I look at things um and so you know if I don't have a story to tell there is no point for me in putting words down on paper and I guess that that is something that we all have in common actually um that 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 we're all working very sort of firmly with story in one way or another um well but i was having a conversation with this uh about this with a friend yesterday that like you know he's teaching a writing class and there there's not a person in the class he said who isn't really gifted uh you know as a writer you know they can string together a beautiful sentence but he's like almost none of them can tell a story nothing's happening Right. And 
that's I think that's the hard part for a lot of writers. People, you know, they have a really great command of language. They um, they have feelings they want to express, but actually finding a narrative uh, is a different beast. Like, do you have well, any, any any thoughts on how that happens? Oh, sweet Jesus, desperation. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's hard. And and I find that for me, where lots of books fall short is the ending. Like I can yes. be totally 100% on board until the last 10 pages of the book when it all just sort of feels like it falls apart in one way or another. Either it just stops or it just doesn't tie together and or it just doesn't, you can feel the it author, just doesn't you can, work. You can feel the author just go, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And... um and I don't know, you know, that's, that's something that's really key to me too. And it's, it, I think that is something that is just, I don't know, you know, I'm really reluctant to say, oh, I think that that's something that you just can't do or can, that you either can do or can't do. Because I think probably everybody can do it. And I hate to, I always hate to make writing sound like magic or like to make inspiration sound like magic or anything like that. You know, I, I, I really resist this idea that you have to, you know, be born knowing how to do it. I think that probably more than anything else that, that, you know, at least in my MFA program, and this was, you know, 15 years ago at this point, there, we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about story. We talked about like images and what worked and what didn't work and line by line stuff and scenes, but not like sort of overarching story exactly, which meant that we had what your friend was talking about. You know, there were lots of people who could write beautifully about nothing for a very long time in some cases, <laughs> for thousands for pages, of pages and pages, <laughs> pages. Well, but you know, the, the other thing like the, the place that I'm at with it, you know, these days is that a lot of it just comes down to pain tolerance and hard work. And I think one of the reasons why it doesn't show up in people's work is because they don't want to roll their sleeves up. It's, it's hard, you know, and you have, it is hard. You have to be willing to live with that uncertainty. You have to be willing to fail and often fail repeatedly and erase pages and start over again. And it's that hell and you have to be willing to tolerate it. And I think that maybe, maybe one of the secrets of people who, uh, become really good at this is that they learn to love the pain <laughs> or right. you know? we learn to need the pain. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like what else could it be? Yeah. Like you look at people who are, um, you know, super prolific or at least consistent, you know, cause everybody's kind of on a different clock. And, um, I think, you know, I consider somebody who does a book every three years, like just like a monster, you know, but right. people who can do like, you know, a book a year or two books a year or whatever, that's just like, an, like an order of magnitude. I can't even comprehend that, but, um, you know, I think people who do that just—they've—they've they've made peace with it somehow, and they've learned to be really high functioning in a state of deep uncertainty and discomfort. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always say that you know, going from a finished book to a new draft is like—I well, don't always say this. I didn't haven't like said it four times today, but I have in the past said that going from a finished book to a first draft is like going from a house where you're picking the paint colors to a hole in the ground and right. a pile of wood, right. and you have to not be worried about that, that you're looking at a hole in the ground and a pile of wood and you have to sort of be ready to, to do the construction. Um, I remember Michael Cunningham was at um, Columbia when I was there and I think I heard this story second or third hand, so it might not even be him. I don't know. I could be slandering the poor man, but I, I heard him that once he said in response to some other writer saying, Oh, you know, the muse just flows through me and I am a conduit for the story. And he said, that must be nice. I work my ass off. Right. <laughs> that's an, yeah, that's kind of an eye roller. I, 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 uh, 
I, I think that's a good point that you make. It's sort of tied to the point that you made earlier about resisting uh, like magical metaphors when it comes to the creative process because after you've been th- especially a book like a long form project after you've been through that full battle um it's pretty hard to think of it in magical terms <laughs> yeah i it, there's just not much that's you know pretty about it. i mean my my last book for most of its you know for most of my it's a drafting life when i was working on it um the provisional title was my goddamn fucking book <laughs> Well, but you know what? To be fair, to be fair, though, uh, like there are, I think there are moments of quote unquote magic in the work itself when you're writing and things go well, or some idea or storyline or detail sort of it can feel that way. Like I can, I can sympathize with like that part of it or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I do. And actually, um, coming back to Steve, there was a line in, I think it was Misery. He used a metaphor that I always liked, which is falling through the hole in the paper. There you know, you when you fall through the hole in the paper and it just like, I don't know, just, it, it just, everything evaporates and there's nothing but the story. I mean, that's, that's why we do it. I mean, that's, that's the good stuff. That's, yeah. it's, it's not, you know, it, it, I think that, you know, editing is, is, has actually become in a twisted way fun and like sort of the construction work in a twisted way is fun, but it's, I, I think you know, it really sort of, for me, it's, it's all about like that, that awesome moment when everything goes away yeah. and it just, you fall through the hole in the paper and you're there. And that's, that's what we all want. Unfortunately, like that comes with a awful lot of hammers and nails and, and stuff to build around it. So when, when you, and, and, you know, with your focus on story and, you know, having that be kind of uh, primary, you know, when you set about writing a book, do you do outlining? I do. Well, you know, I've written, including non-published stuff, I have now written five books. I'm in the middle of my fifth, and I have done them five different ways. <laughs> Each book seems to need its own sort of routine to to figure out how to unlock it. Um, what I'll generally do is outline what works for the last book, is, and to a certain extent the one before, is I, I outline a couple of chapters in advance. You know, I, I know sort of... A through B and W on and the stuff in the middle, I sort of have to figure out as I go to get to that point where I know that I'm headed. And to do that, I will sort of, you know, do very rough sort of free written outlines of. Okay. So wait, so you, you know, you know, like the beginning of the book and the end of the book. Mostly. And I have a general idea about how I'm going to get there, you know, Um, but I don't necessarily know like what's going to happen on a scene to scene level. And sometimes with the end of the book, I don't exactly know how it's going to end. I just know the type of ending it's going to have. If that makes any sense. Like I, I I know how I want it to feel. Now we're getting back into magical realms, but, um, (laughs) but I know that like, you know, with, with save yourself, it ended in sort of this big confrontation. And I always knew there was going to be a, a big convergence and a big, confrontation um and it ended up being a shootout but i didn't know it was going to be a shootout i just knew that everybody was going to end up in the same place and something bad was going to happen well, that's fun um, though. you get a little surprise there well it, it you know again my goddamn fucking book um, <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure fun is the word i use well no but just like when you know your characters yeah. surprise you a little bit or you wind up you know you're like oh this is happening you know yeah no absolutely and it it does sort of um like that's actually one of the parts that I enjoy the most is sort of, you know, the last 50 pages of Save Yourself took me like three months to write. And it was because I was exploring every possible 
avenue to try and find the thing that was right for the book and right for the characters, like picking a lock. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I was going to say this is a good place for us to end because it's like you talked earlier about how getting the ending right is difficult, and a lot of books for you fall apart in their final phase. So, how do you get the ending of a book right? It's just it's just slowing down because, like, I, I think again. Uh, and this goes back to what I was saying about that emotional urge to to be published. And so sometimes people send their books out before they're ready or they share the manuscript too early. I think sometimes when you get close to that finish line and you can kind of see it, you can be like, I just want this thing out of me. I want it done. And you rush the end. That might be yeah. a part of why a lot of books fail at the end. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, with this book, I came downstairs and said, hey, I've only got like 50 pages to go. I bet I'm going to be done in two weeks. Um, and it ended up taking me, like I said, three months because I really did feel like I had to explore every possible avenue and make sure that the combination I'd come upon was what was best, you know, was that, that I'd found the only possible answer and the only true answer for the book. Um, so how do, you, they, how do you know when it's done? Like, how, you know, like how does a painter know when to put his brush down or whatever? Like, how did you, how did you, you just, it's intuitive. You're like, okay, this is it. I'm done. Um, Honestly, when I'm so sick of it that I can't look at it anymore, um, when, when I feel like my own ideas about it have started to get stale, uh, that's the point at which it goes to the next level. Okay. And then, you know, which would be like Owen and a couple of good friends that I have, and then they come back to me with comments, and I, you know, think about their comments and incorporate or don't incorporate or whatever, and then it goes to my agent. So for me, it really is sort of when I have stopped trusting myself to see the book, honestly, because I'm too, I'm too deep in it and I need somebody from the outside to sort of... And when you're so sick of it that like you're essentially nauseous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When it all starts to seem like it sucks, <laughs> right. you might almost be done. <laughs> there you go. So everybody listening, take note. Uh, Kelly, it's been so fun talking with you. Congrats on the book uh, and the new paperback release and uh, be interested to see what you do next. And I just appreciate the time. Well, thanks so much, Brad. This is a lot of fun. Okay, that's Kelly Braffett. Go get her novel. It's out there now in paperback. It's called Save Yourself, and it's available from Broadway Books. You can find Kelly online at kellybraffett.com. She's on the Facebook, she's on Goodreads, and she's on Twitter, where her handle is at Kelly Braffett. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go, uh, to go get that app, the free official Other People app, available wherever you can get an app. So... Uh, otherwise, if you guys uh, know of any fully enlightened beings, please let me know. If you've met one, maybe you could do an email intro. <laughs> Broker an introduction for me. Does uh, does that really exist? Do people like that really exist in the world? Has that actually happened? It seems like bullshit. I don't have that much faith in humans to think that we could produce such a thing among our species. I mean... I'm not saying that there aren't people who are really grounded and wise. Of course there are. But these these special beings, that smells like marketing to me. It smells like a money game. And uh, it seems that if a, such a person really did exist, if they were authentic, you would never even know about them. They'd be all, like in a forest somewhere, away from everybody else. <laughs> or maybe not. They'd be teaching people. I don't know. If you're, uh, if you're uh, a reincarnated Buddha and you're listening and you want to help me eliminate my human suffering, please email me at letters at otherppl.com. I would appreciate that. Please remember that Isaac Newton died of complications from a kidney stone and that Edward Teller lost one of his feet in a streetcar accident. That's it for now. Thanks again to Kelly Braffitt. Go get Save Yourself in paperback. I'll be back again soon with more uh, extremely high-quality uh, high content.
more first-rate programming, more enlightened conversations with authors and other uh, book-related people. All right. Neem Karoli Baba. (laughs) Maybe he was the one. These guys are always dead when I finally hear about them. That's the problem. And their names are always uh, like Neem Karoli Baba. Why is the Buddha, like, never named Dave? (laughs) 